Last week, we reviewed the final chapter of Jonah's life, and uh, I want to go a little bit further backward in time in Old Testament history and look at one of the last episodes from the life of Elijah. And the passage we're going to be looking at this morning is in 2 Kings chapter 1. And I'm going to try to cover the whole chapter. And in order to get through it, I want to take a kind of unusual approach. I want to walk with you verse by verse through the whole narrative, and then we'll tie it all up at the end with a a look at three important features that stand out in this narrative. So let me begin reading the text, 2 Kings chapter 1, starting with verse 1. I'll just read the first verse, and then I have a lot to say. That's how John MacArthur does it, right? (laughs) In fact, when he started the book of Romans, he just took one word, Paul, That's the first word in Romans, and I think he preached a 10-week series on that one word. I'm not going to do that, but I'm going to camp on the first verse while I give you a little bit of Old Testament history. So I'm reading from the Legacy Standard Bible. I'll do that from now on because I don't get paid for it, but that's a good version, and so I want to advertise it for you. 2 Kings 1, verse 1. Now Moab revolted against Israel after the death of Ahab. So I'll start with that one verse. I'll do my best to explain to you sort of the political and historical and geographical context with a kind of simple overview of this. Moab is the nation on the eastern shore of the Dead Sea. If you can visualize that area, Israel and Judah occupy the land west of the Jordan River and the Dead Sea, Moab occupied a a region of similar size on the east side of the Dead Sea. And the Moabites were the descendants of Moab. That's where they got their name. He was the son who was born to Lot's eldest daughter after she and, and her sister had an incestuous relationship with their own father while they got him drunk to do this. You know, Lot was the quintessential compromiser. And even though 2 Peter 2 verse 8 tells us that Lot was a righteous man who felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by the lawless deeds of his neighbors, nevertheless, his willingness to live in close proximity to sin constantly kept him on that slippery slope where he fell frequently. And at times he was drawn into the sins of other people. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Anyway, Genesis 19 describes how after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot's daughters were living in a cave in the wilderness, and their mother was dead. Remember, she had turned into a pillar of salt. And the city where these girls grew up and had all their relationships had been reduced to a smoldering wasteland filled with volcanic rocks, which is what it is to this day. And Lot's daughters despaired of ever getting married, and so they got their own father drunk, and each of them had sex with him. And and so the wicked immorality of Sodom had so defiled these girls that they thought that was the best way to carry on the family name. And both girls became pregnant the elder daughter bore a son whom she named Moab, and he was the father of the Moabites. Lot's younger daughter had a son named Ben-Ami, and he was the father of the Ammonites. So when you hear those tribes mentioned in the Old Testament, just remember that Moab and the Moabites and the Ammonites are descendants of Lot, 
through an incestuous relationship. And the Israelites, therefore, considered the Moabites close relatives as well as close neighbors. They all spoke the same language. They had common ancestors. They had many common traditions, but they served different gods. And so we'll talk more about that in a minute. But the relationship between Israel and the Moabites was always an uneasy relationship. Sometimes the Moabites and the Israelites were allies, and sometimes they were enemies. And you know that the most familiar Moabite in Scripture is Ruth, who was the grandmother of David. She became a proselyte to the Hebrew faith, and so her marriage to Boaz was legal and legitimate, and it meant that the Davidic line from which Christ descended included at least one wife who came from the Moabite nation. It also meant that King David himself was one quarter Moabite. And so when David was being pursued by Saul, it was the Moabites who helped hide him and preserve him. According to 1 Samuel 22, verses 3 and 4, David actually put his parents under the protective care of the Moabites, the king of Moab, while David himself was hiding from Saul in caves and desolate places down around the Dead Sea. But when David ascended to the throne, when he became the king of Israel, the relationship changed, and the Moabites, for a time, became David's enemies. Scripture doesn't describe any particular conflict or event that led to that change, but apparently the Moabites had political reasons to be friendly to David while Saul was on the throne, but then David became the chief rival of Saul while Saul was king, but as soon as he became king himself, he became a political rival to the king of the Moabites. And so the Moabites no longer regarded David as a friend. And so during David's reign, there was a war between Israel and Moab, and David conquered the Moabites and completely subjugated that nation to Israel. And so for several generations, the Moabites were forced to pay tribute to the king of Israel. And for the remainder of David's life, and increasingly during the reign of Solomon, who who took the throne after David, relations between Israel and Moab were essentially peaceful. The Moabites, however, worshipped a deity of their own making, Their god was an idol named Chemosh, and they're sometimes referred to in Scripture as the people of Chemosh. You'll find that in Numbers 21-29 and also Jeremiah 48-46. When it speaks of the people of Chemosh, it's talking about the Moabites. Chemosh himself is referred to in 1 Kings 11 verse 7 as Chemosh, the detestable idol of Moab. So both the culture and the the pagan worship of the Moabites became a kind of stumbling block, a serious stumbling block to the Israelites during this prolonged peace that began under David and extended into Solomon's reign. And in fact, Solomon's backsliding began with a kind of ecumenical embrace of Moabite culture and Moabite religion. Solomon, you know, absorbed a lot of corrupt spiritual values from other neighboring nations. And so the Moabites were not the only ones who had a bad influence on Solomon. Solomon's decline was motivated, first of all, by his desire to please all the women in his harem. First Kings 11 is a chronicle of Solomon's 
spiritual collapse. First Kings 11 verses 1 and 2 says, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which Yahweh had said to the sons of Israel, You shall not go along with them, nor shall they go along with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. And the scripture says Solomon clung to these women in love. And verses 6 through 8 of that chapter go on to say, Solomon did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. He did not follow Yahweh fully as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable idol of Moab, on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. Thus he did for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Now Yahweh was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from Yahweh, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not walk after other gods, but he did not keep what Yahweh commanded. In other words, Solomon, living the, living the life of a Lothario, embraced this kind of spiritual and ecumenical compromise that mirrored his own moral promiscuity, and he, he felt that he could marry as many women as he wanted. After all, he was the king. And then he let this passion for women degrade his character and undermine his faith and overrule the wisdom God had given him. And, and that compromised the entire nation under his rule. And it led to a nationwide spiritual decline and so much religious confusion that culminated then ultimately in the divided kingdom and opened the door to abominations like Jezebel and Ahab. And it also left the people of Israel susceptible to divine judgment and earthly defeat. And so all of Israel suffered years of exile and misery and spiritual confusion because of Solomon's dalliances with these foreign women. All of that began in Solomon's time, and the Moabite influence was one of the major factors that sabotaged Solomon's faithfulness and his effectiveness as a king. So anyway, when Solomon died, the kingdoms of Israel and Judah split. We've talked about this many times. You know, the kingdom split after Solomon. Judah was the southern nation, and it consisted just of two faithful tribes, somewhat faithful. At least they were faithful to the Davidic line. You had Judah and Benjamin. Those two tribes stayed true to the line of Davidic kings. The northern kingdom, which was called Israel, consisted of the other 10 tribes, and they were ruled by a succession of renegade kings who had no right to the throne, no legitimate right under God to rule at all. And so all of the kings of Israel, all the kings of the northern kingdom were wicked. There are no exceptions to that. All of them were wicked. And some of them were profoundly wicked. And control over Moab seems to have passed out of Solomon's line, and it was taken over by this wicked northern kingdom. Under that long dynasty of wicked, unbelieving Israelite kings, we draw that conclusion because when the Moabites finally revolted against the Hebrews, it was the king of Israel, the northern kingdom, that they waged war against. And that's what our verse is describing. There were two, actually, two Moabite revolts. The first one was in the time of Amri. Amri was the father of Ahab, Ahab who married Jezebel. You know Ahab from 
our study of Elijah's life several years ago, Ahab was this hapless king who married Jezebel and unleashed the rankest kind of idolatry into the northern kingdom. Scripture doesn't give us many details about this Moabite revolt against Amri, but it does two chapters after our text, 2 Kings 3, verses 4 through 28, record the story of this revolt and a record of this same conflict was made and inscribed in stone in Phoenician letters by King Mesha, who was the Moabite king, who led this revolt that, was, that is mentioned here in 2 Kings 1. And that stone on which the inscription was made was actually discovered in Jordan by an Anglican missionary in 1868. Found this stone with Phoenician letters describing the same revolt that we have here in our verse. And this is, in fact, one of modern archaeology's most intriguing and most important biblical finds. It was known as the Moabite Stone. And I don't have time to go into it this morning, but if you want to read a really good story, just look up the history of the Moabite Stone on the internet or in a Bible encyclopedia when you get home. Here's what happened, though. This missionary found this stone, and the English and French and Germans wanted it for their museum, so they got into a bidding war over this stone. Each country wanted it, and when the government officials of the Ottoman Empire discovered what incredible sums of money were being offered for this ancient artifact, they decided they're going to handle the bidding themselves, and so they sent word from Damascus to the Bedouins who had possession of the stone, and they said, turn it over to us, we'll, we'll bid it out to the governments. And the Bedouins decided they didn't want anyone else getting possession of this artifact, and so they built a fire under it, and while it was fiery hot, they poured cold water over it, and that shattered it into several pieces. And they distributed the smaller fragments among themselves for good luck charms, but the larger pieces were collected and reassembled, and you can actually see what's left of the Moabite stone in the Louvre Museum in Paris today. How the French got it, I don't know. They must have bid the most for it. But anyway, fortunately for the study of archaeology, before the Arabs destroyed this stone, the French had made what is known as a squeeze. Because the the letters are actually engraved into the stone, they took a papier-mâché glob and made an impression of it. And this squeeze was partly damaged because the paper was still too wet when they took it off the stone, but most of the inscription was good enough to enable the archaeologists to reassemble all the fragments. So you can still read it today. And the inscription tells the history of the Moabite nation during a period of time that coincides almost precisely with the life of Elijah and the record of 2 Kings and our chapter. Like every other archaeological discovery so far, it confirms every detail of the biblical record. One of those great archaeological finds that shows us that biblical history is accurate. And we learn from the Moabite stone that the Moabites revolted during Amri's reign, but they were subdued and again forced to pay tribute, this time to Ahab. Second Kings chapter 3, verse 4 describes this tribute that Ahab demanded. Now, Mesha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder and used to pay the king of Israel 
100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. The Hebrew verb tense suggests that this was a tribute that was required regularly, probably annually. But 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 5 says that when Ahab died and his son Ahaziah took the throne, the Moabites revolted again. And here's the verse. But when Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. Now, the king of Moab was Misha, the guy that's mentioned there. And this simply reiterates what we've already read in the opening verse of 2 Kings 1. After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. And this second revolt was successful. Where the earlier revolt against Ahab had failed, both the scriptures and the Moabite stone focus on this second successful Moabite revolt. From the biblical narrative... It seems the Moabites were successful at least partly because of Ahaziah, the king of Israel, his failure to respond aggressively to this revolt. He sent his armies to wage war, but he himself stayed home in the safety of his palace. That's never good in the, in the Old Testament when it happens, when the king sends the army out to, to war, but he stays home. Never turns out good. And I have a suspicion about why Ahaziah may have stayed home. In 1 Kings 21, when Elijah confronts Ahab, Elijah prophesies that Ahab and his offspring will be utterly destroyed and that all of his offspring, his bloodline, would be, would be wiped from the face of the earth. 1 Kings 21, verse 21. So Elijah confronts Ahab in the vineyard of Naboth, which he, you may know that story. He had gotten it surreptitiously. And the Lord, speaking prophetically through Elijah the prophet, tells Ahab this, quote, I will bring evil, evil upon you, and I will utterly sweep you away, and will cut off from Ahab every male, both bond and free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah, because of the provocation with which you have provoked me to anger, and because you have made Israel to sin." And he goes on, verse 24, the one belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs will eat. And the one who dies in the field, the birds of the sky will eat. So the Lord tells Ahab, I'm not only going to wipe out your descendants, none of them are even going to have a proper burial. If they die in the city, the dogs will eat them. If they die in the fields, the the birds will eat them. So this is a, a, a gruesome prophecy of utter destruction and 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 1 tells us Ahab actually had 70 sons in Samaria. So this was no small family, and it was no small judgment to wipe all of them out. But that began to happen. Remember that Ahab himself uh, died. He was killed in battle, even though he had tried to disguise himself as the king of Judah and some archer fired off a random arrow, and it penetrated between the the joints of Ahab's armor, and he was fatally wounded. The point in Scripture is to say that arrow, the trajectory of that arrow was sovereignly guided by God himself. And so the judgment Elijah had foretold was obviously beginning to come to pass. So it's no wonder Ahaziah was afraid to go into battle. He may have figured he'd be safe if he just stayed away from the battlefield you know, as if he could escape the wrath of God by hiding in the safety of his own palace, as if the judgment of God couldn't reach him there. 
But Ahaziah's palace turned out not to be such a safe place either. So follow our text with me. 1 Kings chapter 1. Now we're past verse 1. We'll move faster. Verse 2. Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber, which was in Samaria, and became ill. In other words, he was seriously injured. It's not, it's not an illness like a flu bug. He was seriously injured by this fall, bedridden with internal bleeding or a wound of some kind that clearly was life-threatening. A lattice, by the way, that's a, a screen or a grate that's made of crisscrossed wooden strips. So this might have been a vent or a, a kind of skylight between the roof and the, and the the ground beneath, or, or more likely, this was probably a flimsy, decorative substitute for a parapet or a balustrade that would go around the perimeter of the roof, supposedly to keep people from falling off. Moses' law demanded that every rooftop that was accessible to people had to have a parapet, a, a guardrail to keep people from falling. And what happened was builders sometimes would obey only the letter of the law while ignoring the purpose of the law. And they they made these decorative but flimsy parapets out of wooden lattice work, which may have been the kind of parapets that were on the king's palace in Samaria. So Ahaziah either carelessly backed into this lattice work barricade or stupidly stepped on a flimsy vent or a skylight, whatever. The lattice gave way. He fell, obviously, some distance either into the courtyard of the palace or through the roof into one of the rooms. And Scripture doesn't describe his injuries, but it's clearly serious. And naturally, Ahaziah wants to know if these injuries are going to prove fatal. Is he going to die from this? You see the second half of verse 2. So he sent messengers and said to them, Go inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I will live from this sickness. Now, this, by the way, is the first mention of Beelzebub in Scripture. Beelzebub was a Philistine deity. His name meant Lord of the Flies, and which was fitting because the land of the Philistines was thick with flies, as that area is still to this day. And the Philistines evidently believed that the, the infestation of flies in their region signified that the Lord of the Flies lived in their land, and so they made this fly god one of their main deities. They had some famous oracles that claimed to be able to tell the future. These oracles usually gave flattering prophecies with predictions that were so ambiguous that they could hardly miss, but the Philistine oracles nevertheless had gained fame throughout Israel. They were like the Psychic Friends Network of Elijah's time or or the horoscope in the newspaper, you know, these ambiguous prophecies that always seemed to come true, but they didn't have any definite meaning to them. And Ahaziah decided that he was going to send messengers to the fly god's oracles to tell him whether he could expect to live. It's like looking at a magic eight ball to find out. This occult curiosity about the future cost him his life. Because God despises all forms of occult fortune-telling, and he strictly forbid the people of Israel to engage in that kind of Israel. It was written into Moses' law. In fact, listen to Deuteronomy 18, verses 9 through 12. 
The Lord says, when you enter the land which Yahweh your God gives to you, you shall not learn to imitate the abominations of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire or who uses divination or who practices soothsaying or one who interprets omens or a sorcerer or one who is an enchanter or a medium or a spiritist or one who inquires of the dead. And so notice he rules out about 18 kinds of fortune-telling, basically saying, do not inquire into the future from people who claim to be able to tell you your fortune. For whoever does these things is an abomination to Yahweh, and because of these abominations, Yahweh your God will dispossess them from before you. So he's saying, this is why the Canaanites were driven from the land, because they were given to this kind of superstition and blasphemy, And there were several similar prohibitions written into the law. Through Moses, God gave his people a zero-tolerance policy against all of the occult arts. And it's absolutely clear from the, the weight of all the commandments that God does not regard any form of occult fortune telling as a matter to be trifled with. Remember that and quit reading the, the horoscope in the newspaper. So before, in fact, before you read a horoscope or consult with a fortune teller or make any kind of superstitious decision because of what some self-styled prophet says, remember, this is a very serious sin, and it was an especially serious sin for a ruler on the throne of Israel. He, of all people, needed to honor and obey God and not to consult these petty Philistine deities like the fly god. It was bad enough for people, you know, lay people, to be tempted or lured into occult and pagan practices. But when the king engaged in that kind of behavior, it always brought certain and severe judgment. You know that Saul lost his kingdom because he went to a fortune teller. And here Ahaziah loses his life because he wanted to inquire about his future from the fly God. But notice, God sovereignly hindered Ahaziah from getting any advice from Beelzebub. Verse 3, but the angel of Yahweh said to Elijah the Tishbite, arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Now therefore says Yahweh, you shall not come down from the bed where you have gone up, but you shall surely die. Then Elijah departed. Now, here you see an instance of one of Elijah's trademark appearances. Some of you will remember, or maybe you've listened to those recordings recently, when we studied the life of Elijah several years ago. One of Elijah's idiosyncrasies was the way he always appears out of nowhere and confronts his enemies and then disappears almost before they have time to react. And that's what he does here. And Elijah has bad news for Ahaziah. You shall surely die. He tells him, you'll never get out of bed again. And he tells Ahaziah's messengers to go back with that message and give it to their king. Now, it's going to become apparent in a moment that these guys had no clue who Elijah was. Maybe they were too young to remember the contest between Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. That had been several years before this. They were servants in Ahaziah's court, so they're the next generation after Ahab. 
And it's probably a, a given that tales of Elijah's spiritual triumphs were not, you know, the frequently told tales in the, in the topics of conversation in that household. So they didn't seem to know who Elijah was. But it's interesting, isn't it, that these men immediately halted their journey, turned right around, and went straight back to Ahaziah's bedside. Think about that. These are messengers of the king. They've been sent on a, a mission by their king, but after this short encounter with a single stranger, they abandon their assignment and return home with a message for the king. And I have to ask, what was it about Elijah that made them take orders from him rather than obeying their master's orders? Think about it. I mean, obviously, his physical appearance alone was probably somewhat intimidating. Uh, and furthermore, from what we know of the character and the personality of Elijah, it's probably safe to assume that his delivery was not very nuanced, you know? He wasn't being winsome. It was dis he was stern and severe and intense. But I don't think it was merely a matter of style that prompted these guys to obey Elijah rather than their master. But when a man of God is under the control of the Spirit of God, that man's message is empowered by the Spirit in such an, it's in an inscrutable way, but such a powerful way that, that the message penetrates even the hardest of hearts. It's why we preach the gospel and we're commanded to preach the gospel. And it doesn't matter how people receive it. It's the gospel that's the power of salvation. Not our style, not our winsomeness, but the message itself. It penetrates hardened hearts. It's designed to do that. And Elijah was speaking with the authority and the power of God himself. Who can resist that? Verse 5, so the messengers returned to the king and he said to them, why have you returned? Ahaziah knew that they hadn't been gone long enough to get to Ekron and back with the message from Beelzebub, verse 6. And they said to him, a man came up to meet us and said to us, go, return to the king who sent you and say to him, thus says Yahweh, is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed where you have gone up, but you shall surely die. They give him the message exactly, verbatim. And he said to them, what kind of man was he who came up to meet you and spoke these words to you? And they said to him, he was a hairy man with a leather girdle girded about his loins. And he said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. I told you his appearance might be intimidating. That's how a scripture describes him, a hairy man with a leather girdle girded about his loins. I'm glad nobody describes me that way, let's say. <laughs> But Elijah, it fit. You'd think that Ahaziah really would be terrified now, right? Because he knows from long experience that Elijah speaks for God. Elijah had never once been wrong about anything. And, and you know, beginning with at, at the word of Elijah, this three-year-long drought had started. And then finally, after three years, he gave the word and it rained again. He called down fire from heaven on Mount Carmel. He was about to do a couple of repeat performances here, but Ahaziah doesn't know about that yet. He's going to call down fire again. But when Elijah confronted Ahab, Ahaziah's father, in Naboth's vineyard in 1 Kings 21, 
Elijah knew everything about Ahab's treachery against Naboth. He correctly predicted Ahab's demise because of it. And now he's telling Ahaziah that you two are going to die soon. But what's remarkable here is Ahaziah's response. Rather than fear and repentance, he's angry and vindictive against Elijah. By the way, don't hate the messenger. Elijah was only the envoy of God's word. Yahweh was the one Ahaziah is really fighting against here. And so this is a foolish response. Verse 9. Then the king sent to him a commander of 50 with his 50. So it was a, a commander and 50 soldiers. And he went up to him, and behold, he was sitting on the top of a hill. And he said to him, O man of God, the king says, come down. And Elijah answered and spoke to the commander of 50. If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Wow. I mean, this was apparently an instantaneous thing. This fire from heaven, notice, it didn't just kill these guys and char their bodies. It consumed them. All 50 of these guys fit neatly into an ashtray when Elijah was done with them. You know, one of, the, one of the earliest viral videos on the Internet showed a guy who was igniting a sack of charcoal by burning some liquid oxygen. Some of you may have seen this. And he poured this stuff on a container that he held on a pole from at least 10 feet away. And the fire just flared up for a second, and then it immediately went away. And what was left was a melted steel barbecue grill and the ashes from a whole sack of charcoal, all of it instantly consumed. That's, I think, like what happened here. Only the fire fell from heaven, which you'd think that would awaken Ahaziah, right? Wouldn't that wake you up? But somehow, word got back to him about what had happened, and evidently there were witnesses to this instantaneous cremation, and the witnesses report back to the king, verse 11, so... He again sent him another 50, another commander of 50 with his 50. And he answered and spoke to him, O man of God, thus says the king, come down quickly. And Elijah answered and spoke to them, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Instant replay. This guy doesn't learn, does he? You'd think the point would be clear by now, but, verse 13, so he again sent the commander of a third 50 with his 50, right? You get the feeling Ahaziah would have kept sending men until his whole army was destroyed by fire from heaven, but this third captain was a wiser man, and he humbled himself before Elijah, verse 13, Then the third commander of 50 went up and came and bowed down on his knees before Elijah and begged him and said to him, O man of God, please let my life and the lives of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the first two commanders of 50 with their 50s, but now let my life be precious in your sight. Then the angel of Yahweh spoke to Elijah, Go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king. It's like, first two guys should have just asked nicely, right? (laughs) This scene always makes makes me smile. You know, after two times 50 cases of spontaneous human combustion, 
Elijah just agrees to go with these men to Ahaziah's bedside. They didn't have to force or cajole him. He just comes to Ahaziah on his own free will. And I mean free will in the Calvinist sense, because notice that he goes at the Lord's bidding, right? He arrives at the palace and he's shown into the room where Ahaziah is lying on his deathbed, verse 16. Then Elijah spoke to him, thus says Yahweh, because you have sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron, is it because there is no God in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed where you have gone up, but shall surely die. Same message he's already received, right? So Ahaziah died according to the word of Yahweh, which Elijah had spoken. And because he had no son, Jehoram became king in his place in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. And so the biblical record of Ahaziah closes with the last verse of this chapter, verse 18. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaziah, which he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? So there you have this short narrative. It's a simple one, really. But I want you to notice this is full of gospel themes like sin and faith and divine mercy. And in fact, those three themes are embodied in each of the three main characters of this narrative. Ahaziah embodies the stubbornness of sin and and the self-destructive nature of sin. Elijah illustrates the power of steadfast faith. And Yahweh, of course, displays the patience and the persistence of divine mercy. So I want to examine each of those three features one at a time. So first consider Ahaziah and the destructive nature of sin. Ahaziah had followed in his father's wicked footsteps. He had also followed his mother's wickedness, and to the degree that he was really just a puppet ruler for Jezebel, she told him what to do. She was the real power behind the throne in Israel, just as she had been during Ahab's wicked reign. She now bosses her son the way she bossed her father. And Ahaziah's short reign was so marked by wickedness that God's judgment was inevitable. Sooner rather than later even. And you can see the hand of divine displeasure in the accident that Ahaziah suffered. Ahaziah despised Yahweh. And so God gave him over to his own sin. In fact, Ahaziah's life reveals how often our sinful rebellion carries its own consequences. Ahaziah had already rejected the truth, and therefore he had no option but to pursue a lie. And that is why he sought a a forecast from some lying demonic oracle. And you need to understand the character of this Philistine god, Beelzebub. His very name, Lord of the Flies, it has a a filthy, foul sound to it, doesn't it? And Beelzebub was as vile a deity as anyone ever invented. He supposedly ruled the flies, those revolting insects that swarm around every kind of decay and filth, and they spread disease and maggots. And so this was a fitting image for this kind of God. Whoever would think of worshiping a deity whose realm was everything that's foul and unclean. 
The whole idea of a God who delighted in all of everything that was unclean was so revolting to the Jews that they actually altered the name Beelzebub slightly to make it Beelzebul, Beelzebul, which means God of dung. But you get a sense of how utterly abhorrent Beelzebub was to a typical Jew. And in fact, this dung god, Beelzebul, was the consummate example of a demonic false god. And he so epitomized everything that is impure and unholy, everything that opposes the true God, so that by the time of Jesus, the name Beelzebul had become a way to refer to Satan. And so when you read the name Beelzebul in the, in the New Testament... That is a reference to the devil, and it's a fitting name for the evil one, isn't it? God of dung. And Satan himself is in a true but spiritual sense the real object of every Baal worshiper's devotion. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 20, Paul writes, The things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. There's a real demonic energy in all false religion, and especially occultism. And that's one of the chief reasons the people of God are forbidden to trifle with occult practices. But consider the irony of the fact that Ahaziah, who's sitting on the throne in Israel, had so much contempt for Israel's God that he would be willing to inquire after the lying oracles of a loathsome being like Beelzebub. But Ahaziah had already rejected the truth, so God simply gave him over to lies. Think about it. It is inherently irrational to reject truth, right? That's what our culture has done. And one of the reasons for so much confusion in the political and and, uh, cultural world that we live in is because people simply reject truth. They don't want the truth. And so God gives them over to a lie. Suppose that this oracle at Ekron had told Ahaziah what he wanted to hear. Maybe, maybe the Beelzebul sends him back a message telling him he's going to live. That wouldn't make it true, would it? If the morning horoscope says to you that this is an auspicious day to launch a new business venture, that doesn't make it true. Who knows how many people have destroyed their lives by pursuing lies of the lies of fortune tellers because they have no choice but to go after lies once they've rejected the truth. That's why we need to hold fast to the truth God has given us and order our lives by what Scripture says. Because, as I said, modern society in general has gone the opposite direction, rejecting Scripture and yet embracing things like astrology and psychology and evolution and humanism and secularism and and a host of other superstitious or rationalistic lies, fables. If you turn away from the truth in order to follow fables, you, in effect, have given yourself over to Satan, who is the father of lies. That's why it's sheer folly for Ahaziah to inquire of the Philistine oracle in the first place. Many wicked men sat on the throne of Israel after Jeroboam's revolt. Every king they had, like I said, was, was wicked. But this episode is something of a low point for this whole era that an Israelite king would inquire of a Philistine god. Shows you the depravity of sin, the awful stubbornness of sin 
that he would do this when it's clearly an irrational and evil thing to do. Here's a second outstanding feature of this narrative. Consider Elijah and the empowering energy of faith. There's a remarkable contrast between the Elijah of this episode and how we see Elijah in an earlier era of his life when he was exhausted and frightened, who just a few years before this had run from Jezebel and fled all of the way from the northernmost region of Israel to the southern end of the Sinai Peninsula. And you remember he's hiding and weeping and begging God to kill him because he's the last faithful person left and he's weak and defeated. But here you see Elijah confident and bold and unmovable. First, he arrests these messengers on the road, boldly ordering them to go back and tell their king what the king does not want to hear. And then in verse 9, notice that when Ahaziah's soldiers came looking for him, it tells us Elijah was sitting on the top of the hill. He knows that Ahaziah wants to kill him just as much as Jezebel wanted to kill him when he ran from her. But this time he doesn't run and hide. He sits in plain view on top of a hill where they're sure to see him there. And then when they threaten him, he more or less casually calls down fire out of heaven and reduces them to ashes. Don't you sort of wish he had shown that kind of confidence when Jezebel threatened to kill him after the showdown on Mount Carmel? This is the true Elijah you see here. This is the prophet at his best and most mature and most stable. And what's the reason for the difference? Is faith. As his faith grew strong, so did Elijah. And here he reveals an amazing superhuman level of faith. He just stands without flinching before a detachment of 50 armed elite soldiers. These are Ahaziah's best fighting men. And he displays the kind of faith spoken of in Matthew 17, 20, where Jesus says, truly, I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed and you say to this mountain, move from here to there, it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. And he just calls down fire out of heaven. Now, let me explain something here. That kind of faith is a supernatural faith. Its source is God. I made this point in my message last week at the Truth Matters conference. Jesus was not suggesting, when he said, if you have faith like a mustard seed, you can move this mountain. He wasn't suggesting that you can summon that kind of faith from within yourself. He wasn't teaching that if you try really hard to believe that you can and you believe in yourself strongly enough, then you can command mountains. That was not Jesus' point at all. The point is that true faith is trust in a promise God has made, belief in what God has said. That's what faith is. And Elijah, we know, was a prophet. He knew through his prophetic gifts that God intended to carry out his judgment this way. In other words, true faith has both its source and its object in God. So don't think Elijah was exercising some kind of superstitious self-confidence here. Not at all. His trust was in God, and it was God, not Elijah, who performed this miracle. So bear that in mind. But in that same vein, it's important to note that Elijah didn't call down fire from heaven against these men out of any kind of personal or petty vindictiveness. If that had been any part of his motive, God would not have answered with fire. You know, some people have trouble reconciling this account with the passage in 
Luke 9, verse 55, remember where James and John wanted to call down fire from heaven against some Samaritans because they were refusing to allow Jesus to pass through their village on his way to Jerusalem. They said, let's just call down fire from heaven like, like Elijah did. And Jesus strongly rebukes James and John. And also, what about John three seventeen? God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. So how do you reconcile that with this? Well, just to be clear, Scripture never condemns what Elijah did here because it wasn't Elijah who did this. God did this. And on the other hand, contrary to what a lot of people think, the New Testament is not promoting a purely pacifist agenda. What happened when Elijah encountered these messengers was an act of God, and it was done for God's glory. As a matter of fact, Jesus will one day destroy his enemies with a fiery retribution from heaven. That will happen. But on that day in Samaria with James and John, Jesus was on a mission to save, not to judge. And James and John were reacting because they had been personally insulted. And therefore, their desire to call down fire from heaven was inappropriate and wicked because vengeance belongs to the Lord, not to us. And so for all of us who, who don't have Elijah's prophetic gift and special instructions from heaven, it's a pretty much universal rule. The desire to seek vengeance against our enemies, that's a carnal desire. We shouldn't foster that. But Elijah's fire from heaven was meant by God as a public display of divine vindication and as a public judgment against an evil regime that sat on the throne of Israel opposing Jehovah and everything he did, everything he stood for. That kind of extreme wickedness called for extreme judgment. This is a breathtaking, awe-inspiring judgment. That's why fire was warranted against Ahaziah's soldiers, but it wasn't warranted a millennium later against those Samaritans who turned Jesus away. And that brings us to a third feature that stands out boldly in this account. Consider Yahweh and the patient persistence of divine mercy. And to me, this, this theme stands out as well. You won't see this on the face of this text, maybe, you, you see fire from heaven, you see judgment from God, but the theme that's woven through the story is in the midst of all of this judgment, there is a constant display of the Lord's great mercy, even to his foes. Ahaziah's injuries are one clear example. He could have died immediately from the fall if the Lord's only desire was to destroy this guy and kill him. He could have died, but the Lord graciously spared his life for a time and gave him an opportunity to contemplate his impending ruin and repent if, if, if he would have, but he didn't. Opportunities like that are not to be taken for granted. God doesn't owe mercy to anyone. And in fact, contrast Ahaziah's fate with that of his soldiers they were destroyed on the spot with no opportunity to seek any remedy. And God is not unrighteous when, when he judges instantly and summarily like that. But he doesn't always do that. So often he delays his judgment. 
And I would guess that there is not a person in this room who has not been the beneficiary of the kind of divine mercy that fires a warning shot before God dispenses divine justice. We've all been beneficiaries of that. God often gives us time to reflect, and he gives us warning signs to reflect on before he makes us taste the consequences of our sin. And those are opportunities for repentance. I hope you never waste an opportunity like that or take it for granted. Because Proverbs 29 verse 1 says, A man who hardens his neck after much reproof will suddenly be broken beyond healing. And this whole episode reminds us that it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's Hebrews 10.31. And our God is a consuming fire, Hebrews 12.29. And quite literally, you see the fulfillment of that in what happened to these first two captains with their 50s. But the third group of soldiers is a reminder that God gives grace to the humble. James 4.6, 1 Peter 5.5. God's mercies are never exhausted, and, and those who humble themselves before God and confess their sins can always find mercy. That's the gospel. And in fact, Christ is the living embodiment of divine mercy. The Apostle Paul summarizes the whole gospel in one verse this way, 1 Timothy 1.15. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost. He's saying, God's mercy is vast enough to save the very worst of sinners. Christ came into the world to do just that by paying the price of sin on behalf of anyone who would simply embrace him by faith as Lord and Savior. And the Apostle John gave the most well-known single verse summary of the gospel with these words, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes, even the foremost of sinners, Isaiah 55, verses 6 and 7, spells this out even in the Old Testament. It says, Seek Yahweh while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and let the unrighteous man forsake his thoughts, and let him return to Yahweh, and he will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. The patience of God is truly a marvel, but we are cautioned again and again not to take God's long-suffering for granted or to presume on his grace. Scripture says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So whether you are a believer or not, all of these truths are poignant incentives to careful self-examination. In the words of 2 Peter 3.15, consider the patience of our Lord as salvation. And meanwhile, encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Or quoting 2 Peter 3 again, you therefore, beloved, be on your guard, lest you fall from your own steadfastness and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, to him be glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for your long-suffering and mercy. And we confess that our hearts are frequently heedless and hard. 
Break through that. Melt our hearts. Draw us closer. Make us more attentive and give us grace to follow Christ more faithfully. We pray in his name. Amen. You have been listening to pastor and teacher Phil Johnson. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by Phil Johnson. All rights reserved.